Jesus' sermon at the temple is not simply a call for us to be inwardly as well as outwardly faithful. It contains detailed instructions for how a Hebrew nation with centuries of tradition in the law of Moses will carry on their worship both in public and in private now that that law is fulfilled. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me once again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 16, I am the law and the light. We have a question today from Dana, and our question is from last week's lesson. Uh, 3 Nephi chapter 920, she says, uh, the layman, in, that, in that verse, the Lamanites didn't recognize they were given the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, I'll read this verse briefly. Ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Dana asks, Did the Lamanites not understand this doctrine because it had not been legitimized until after the law was fulfilled? How else would this ordinance have been received other than by the laying on of hands? The power of the Holy Ghost has obviously been around and well documented. What changed after the fulfillment of the law? Wonderful question, Dana. If you remember in the New Testament, uh, some weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples were teaching. It's, it's early on in the book of Acts. The disciples are teaching those who have come for the festival of the Jewish people from all over Jewish civilization, they've come for the festival of weeks, what we call Pentecost or Shavuot, the festival of weeks. And on that occasion, as they're testifying of Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes upon them. People begin showing evidence of gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, but mostly it was this, this rushing feeling as if, as if God himself were among them. This uh, experience, this feeling was so powerful that they, those in attendance were converted to such an extent that they had all things in common, pretty much from that day forward. So they were willing to unify themselves as a body of Christ, simply based on this Holy Ghost rushing in among them. And what, uh, and the modern day interpretation of that day is that they received the gift of the Holy Ghost on that day, as promised uh, during the life of Jesus Christ. He told them, after I'm gone, you will receive... It's, it's only after I am ascended to my Father that I can send the Holy Ghost to you, and you will receive it. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, the gift of the Holy Ghost today is conferred through the laying on of hands, but in the, on the day of Pentecosts, it was conferred by the faithfulness of those present and simply by the will of God. So it's an interesting question you ask, and there's not one easy answer, the, except to say that it was done that way both in the old world and in the new. And Jesus is testifying here in 3 Nephi chapter 9. He's testifying to those who are listening to this voice after they've been destroyed. He said that this gift has already been had among the Lamanites because of their great faith. So the, the faith of those Lamanites was similar to the faith of those visiting Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They received the gift the same way. 
And even though it was before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, he was apparently capable of sending that gift without the laying on of hands. So I hope that answers your question, and uh, thank you for that. If you, sh- if you would like to ask a question, any question at all that requires a spiritual answer, or a, I'm sorry, a scriptural answer, then I'm ho- hopefully a spiritual answer, then send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. So today's lesson, uh, we'll, I'm, I'm going to review briefly what we talked about last time, which was, uh, the, I guess thematically, chapter 11 seems to fit a little bit better in today's lesson than it did in last week's lesson. Last week was the destructions around the time of the death of Jesus Christ. And then as we read at the end of chapter 10 of 3 Nephi, it was towards the end of the 34th year that the people are all gathered around the temple and then they see this figure in the sky. They hear a voice three times and only on the third time do they finally understand it. And then they see this figure uh, descending from heaven and they recognize and they hear a voice that says, I am Jesus Christ. And uh, they hear, I'm sorry, the voice, the original voice says, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right? This is the voice of the Father. And then uh, Jesus Christ testifies of who he is. So we're going we're gonna to review a little bit, a few things about chapter 11. And then we're going to talk about chapters 12 through 16. What has been, uh, it, modern LDS scholars have termed the Sermon at the Temple. And that is to draw parallels between this teaching of Jesus at the Temple of the Nephites in, in the land Bountiful draw parallels between that and the Sermon on the Mount. As you'll see at the top of each of these chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 3 Nephi, in the chapter notes it says, compare Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. The comparison is so close that you can almost do a line-by-line comparison. Now, there are many differences, many small differences. Those differences are subtle. And as we'll see, the differences are mostly appropriate to the great changes that have come over Jesus Christ himself and come over the world of believers as a result. So, for example, uh, most of you will be able to, to guess from memory or to remember, to cite from memory, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus says to the Jews in Jerusalem. After his resurrection, he says to the Nephites in Bountiful, he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as I or your Father in heaven. Is perfect. So Jesus at this point has been perfected. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. But other changes that are sort of along those lines, which basically are uh, illustrative of the fact that Jesus has now undergone the atonement. He's teaching this lesson almost in the past tense rather than in the future tense. Uh, other than that, the, the two lessons are very similar. They're similar in order, obviously thematically similar because the content is almost all the same. So as we jump right into talking about this sermon, I want to ask the question, why did Jesus choose this? Why was this, um, if you, you, now we're in an election year in the United States, if you know much about politics, uh, you know what a politician's stump speech is. It's something that they're very accustomed to giving because they jump up on a stump wherever the train, it comes from the, the 1800s. They get off the train at every campaign stop and they jump up on the nearest stump and they give the same, basically the same speech to every crowd that they come in contact with. And so a politician's stump speech is something they're very familiar with because their message doesn't change from town to town. It's pretty much the same. Well, 
The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus Christ's stump speech. It was uh, probably given in many different forms with uh, some things added or some things taken away depending on the audience. That's why we have a version of it in Luke as well. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. It does seem, by the fact that the third Nephi, the Sermon at the Temple, by the fact that it echoes Matthew so closely, it does seem that Matthew's version is the most complete, or else Jesus would have given a different version. So why would Jesus choose this as his stump speech? Why did he give it to the Nephites? What is it about the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple that is so important? Why, what thematically unites all these seemingly disparate elements in this speech, in this sermon, and causes them to be the, the very thing that Jesus would choose to teach, right? The, the message that Jesus, if you, could, if you could distill it down to a single sentence, the message, message that Jesus carried to people was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he would talk about all of the things in the Sermon on the Mount. So why did he do that? What was so interesting to set this sermon apart? And what was it about the sermon at the temple that made it so significant for us today? Okay, we're going to answer these questions. Uh, a lot of the ideas that I will expose, that I will uh, elaborate on in today's lesson come from a book called Illuminating the Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount by John Welch. You can find the text of this uh, entirely online, so if you search for that, you should be able to find that. And this is part of, I believe, the, uh, the BYU Scholars Archive. So if you search for those things, you can find this, but it's actually a long book. We're just taking small parts of it and also some, some of my own ideas. Uh, so, but I recommend that, that, that book very highly to you. First of all, we have a history among the Nephites for this sort of temple address. If you remember, Jacob gave a couple of them, one in 2 Nephi chapters 6 through 10. The, the, the other one was at the time he was calling the Nephites to repentance in Jacob chapters 2 through 3. Obviously, King Benjamin's address was one of these temple addresses, and uh, so that's in Mosiah chapters 1 through 6. And then here is Jesus giving us uh, a similar thing. Now, the specific example of King Benjamin's address is very instructive, because as we talked about at the time, if you remember the, those lessons about King Benjamin's address, my speculation and a lot that of a lot of LDS scholars is that the occasion for his address was what is called Sukkot, which is the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the fact that he erected a tower near the temple and a, a few of the other things that were specific to King Benjamin's address gave us some subtextual clues that, that we could use to conclude that the occasion of King Benjamin's address was one of the ancient Hebrew festivals. Now, there were three of those uh, that Moses taught and established in his lifetime, that of Passover and then Shavuot, which means weeks, which is also called in the New Testament Pentecost. It's kind of the first fruits festival. And then Sukkot, which is the, the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. It's where the the Jews would all go to Jerusalem and basically camp out in their tents around Jerusalem for seven days. So those were the three festivals which faithful Jews would generally travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, 
Obviously, the farther away you lived from Jerusalem, the harder it was to go three times a year. But the closer you were, the more you were expected to show up in Jerusalem three times every single year. And we have evidence that Jesus attended all of these festivals and more, not necessarily every year, but uh, he also was present in Jerusalem during the, the Festival of Lights, which we know today as Hanukkah, which was a fairly recent festival in his time. So Jesus was very, a very observant Jew, and he would have tried everything he could to be present in the temple uh, during these predetermined festivals. Now, as we have evidence at the end of chapter 10 of 3rd Nephi, it says that, I will show you, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, Nephi is, is saying, or I'm sorry, Mormon is saying, I will show you that they had much cause to rejoice in the end of the 30th and 4th year because uh, Jesus appeared to them. So, um, oh, I'm, uh, you know what, I'm going to read it. It's verse 18 of 3rd Nephi 10. It came to pass in the ending of the 30th and 4th year, behold, I will show unto you that the people of Nephi who were spared and also those who had been called Lamanites who had been spared did have great favors shown unto them and great blessings poured out upon their heads, insomuch that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven, he did truly manifest himself unto them. Now this gives us, this verse gives us a timeline for the visit of Jesus Christ to the Nephites in the ending of the 30 and 4th year. You remember we talked about timeline last in the last lesson, and that was that the, the years of the Nephites didn't necessarily coincide with the birthday of Jesus Christ. So this day, night, and day, as if there had been no night, the sign of the birth of Christ, was only observed, it only became the foundation for their calendar nine years later. And so I speculated that they may have, uh, they may have called the current year, n- year number nine, right? This is, in our, in our parlance, they would say this is A.D. 9, or the year of our Lord, 9. But they didn't necessarily change uh, the first day of their year to be the day of that sign. The months might have remained intact, in other words. The Jewish calendar as we know it today ends and begins and ends around the time of the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in late September, uh, or, you know, can be in different times in September, generally. And uh, the, the point of that is that we feel like that Jesus, well, obviously Jesus Christ died around the time of Passover, and we feel like, okay, if it was the ending of the 30 and 4th year, our mind jumps immediately to, wow, it was several, it was nine months later, it was in the end of December. But December had no meaning to the Nephites. The end of their year would have been either, the, the, the Jews actually observed two different year endings. One was around the time of Passover, which is a more ancient uh, new year, and then the more modern new year into modern times which is around the Feast of Tabernacles in September. So this may have been anywhere between a short time after Passover all the way until September. But it wasn't nine months later. It might have been four, five, or maybe even six months later, uh, depending on how they observed their calendar. And the Nephites may have not kept their calendar completely faithful to how they knew it in Jerusalem. They wouldn't have had the same seasons, obviously, living in Central America as we assume that they did, uh, they wouldn't have observed the same seasons because they wouldn't have had the same climate. And so they, they, if, if they weren't observant during the early years of their uh, wanderings about their calendar, then they may have been slightly off. In any case, Brother Welch advances the theory, and I 
uh, wholeheartedly accept it, which is that the the visit of Jesus Christ coincides with one of these three festivals. Now, obviously, uh, it's probably not Passover, because had Jesus, first of all, he was crucified around the time of Passover. Had he died at Passover and then waited until the next year to appear to the Nephites, assuming that their calendar was pretty close to synchronized, then they might have, their confusion might have gotten the better of them, and they might have thought, well, this voice that talked to us in 3 Nephi chapter 9, 3 Nephi chapter 10, that told us that God will no longer accept our burnt sacrifices, and the law of Moses hath an end in me. What does all that mean? Maybe we shouldn't keep doing these festivals. So it's probable that it wasn't Passover. So it seems like, but we do have some evidence that this would have been one of the one of these three feasts. So we're now it's narrowed down to either Shavuot or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason for that is the people are gathered around the temple already. It seems a little bit remarkable that there's no mention in uh, this third Nephi chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 about the crowd growing larger as the day goes on. And that's because everybody who was going to come to the temple was already there. It seems that way, at least. This, these are guesses that we're making. And they are all talking to each other about these marvelous signs that have come to pass. What that seems to imply is that the believers, those people who have uh, remained faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and were therefore spared, this is the first time that they're assembling themselves. This is a new thing for them to talk about and with other believers. And therefore, it, it seems probable that this was the Feast of Pentecosts. Or in other words, it's only about seven weeks after uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember, if you, if you were following us last year, uh, Jesus Christ was walking with the disciples for 40 days. Uh, there are a lot of beliefs in the Christian world about this 40-day these 40-day lessons, right? So Jesus Christ was three days in the tomb, and then he was with the disciples for 40 days. He actually was only gone for a few days before the the Feast of Pentecosts. And uh, then what that implies is that uh, Jesus then, he left in order to spend this time with the Nephites. It's very interesting uh, because he would have been with the Jews in Palestine for almost the entire time between his resurrection and Pentecost, and then he would have gone almost straight from there to spend time with the Nephites and descend from heaven and give them this lesson. So if you want to look up so-called 40-day literature, these are the teachings of Jesus. These lessons that Jesus Christ would have taught to his disciples in this 40 days that he walked with them. And it's apocryphal, meaning it hasn't been canonized into scripture, and some of it is known only through rumor. There are rumors about teachings that Jesus gave his disciples in private that we don't actually have the teachings of. We just have writings about those teachings. And so uh, if you're ever interested in that, you can look up 40-day literature. But Jesus in... Third Nephi chapter 15, the first verse, he talks about how I have just taught you, right, this sermon on the temple, at, at the temple in, 12, 13, in chapter 12, 13, and 14. I've just taught you those things that I taught to my disciples in Jerusalem before I ascended to the Father. This seems to be 
an implication that Jesus gave his disciples a complete review of the Sermon on the Mount before he ascended as part of this 40-day literature. And what that means is that the reason that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the reason that it's so complete is that Matthew got a personal review of it from Jesus. You know, one of the things that Jesus does in this, in this teaching, uh, we won't study it today, but he actually calls forth one of his disciples and he corrects the, the scriptural record. And so it seems likely that if Jesus did walk with his disciples for 40 days, he would have said, you know what? You guys have kept a journal about me. You're all going to write, some of you are going to write these things down. Let me correct the records that you have, or let me bring some things back to your memory. So that's what this verse, uh, 3 Nephi chapter 15, verse 1, that's what it might mean when Jesus says that these are the things that I taught my disciples before I ascended into heaven. He may have... uh, he may have been re- reviewing with them the important things that he wanted them to remember, most specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And I say most specifically because Jesus comes down, talks to these, uh, talks to these Nephites, he gives them a brief introduction, and then he starts right into the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is almost monolithic. In other words, it, it seems to be this one big chunk of lesson Um, and there is a biblical scholar named Joachim Jeremias that Brother Welch cites, and he says, uh, so biblical scholars, they don't have the advantage of having access to the the sermon at the temple, and what what this scholar, Mr. Jeremias, said that that, uh, Brother Welch cites is that it doesn't seem like the Sermon on the Mount is something you would give to an audience of uninitiated people. You wouldn't just show up the very first time people are meeting you and teach them the entire Sermon on the Mount. That's another reason why it's likely that the Sermon on the Mount that we have compiled in the book of Matthew is, is the version that Jesus gave Matthew after his resurrection. Because Jesus would likely have uh, probably abridged the Sermon According to his audience, if people were totally new to his teachings, he may have left some of these things out. The reason that Brother Jeremias gave, and I'm quoting now from, uh, from John Welch's book, in Jeremias's view, five things are presupposed by the Sermon on the Mount. It assumes that its audience is already familiar with, one, the light of Christ, two, the coming of the new age, three, the expiration of the old law, four, the unbounded goodness of God, and five, the designation of the disciples as successors of the prophetic mission. These must be taken as givens in order for the Sermon on the Mount to make sense. Strikingly, these are among the main themes explicitly stated in 3 Nephi 9, verse 19, and 11, verse 3 through 12, verse 2, as a prologue leading up to the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 14. So here's a biblical scholar in mainstream Christianity who's saying the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense to be taught in a vacuum. You have to be initiated to the gospel before this can happen. And then Brother Welch is saying, and look at how these Nephites were given exactly these lessons that, um, that Professor Jeremias said they would need to have gotten 
They're getting them from either the voice of Christ or the person of Christ in 3 Nephi chapter 9 or 3 Nephi chapter 11. He's giving them an introduction that they need to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and, and by Sermon on the Mount, I'm including it as a general term to include the Sermon at the Temple. Now, one of the interesting things about 3 Nephi chapter 11, uh, just to review last week's lesson briefly, is that Jesus teaches very quickly the, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. He teaches faith, repentance, baptism, and the, ho- the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, but the fact that he is teaching at the temple also leads us to wonder, could he have been talking about uh, the temple ordinances as well? Uh, one of the things that, that the audience of Jesus Christ, they're all wondering about, they're, they're marveling at him, saying that all things are done away. One of the things they're wondering about is, okay, how do we worship then? Here we are, uh, presumably, now this is a guess, but presumably we're here at the Feast of Pentecosts, and we don't know whether we should even do this again. Should we come back three times a year? Uh, you've already told us this voice in heaven during the darkness told us you will no longer you will no longer accept our sacrifices of blood. And so what should we do? How should we worship? This question is a very, very important one. Their religion is basically... Uh, fundamentally changed. It has completely transformed. And so Jesus is teaching them all of the things that they need to know to be Christians, to be worshipers of Christ. The things that it took the disciples in Jerusalem, it took them years to figure out. How do we worship? How do we meet? How do we treat uh, these beliefs that we've traditionally followed for centuries of our time? And Jesus Christ is giving to the Nephites a crash course in how to be worshiping Christians. And because he's there present with them, and because these are the the believers, right? Jesus doesn't have to deal with uh, the elders of the Jews who are resistant to his teachings. He's he's here among solely believers. And they've assembled at the temple for the right reasons to see him. And therefore, he can just give them the information. He doesn't have to couch it uh, in anything or use intermediaries to teach it to them. And therefore, they get it a lot quicker. And the way that he teaches them how to be Christians is through the Sermon on the Mount. So he gives them, first of all, he gives them the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel. Later on, we'll see that he institutes the sacrament, which is part of going to be part of their regular worship. So the question remains, what now do they do with this setting that they find themselves in? They're there congregated in the temple. This has been a holy place for them for generations upon generations. What do they do with the temple now? It no longer functions the way it functioned under the law of Moses. And one of the main points, one of the main themes of this book by Brother Welch is that the Sermon on the Mount, and hence the Sermon at the Temple, is an exposition of the doctrines that will be taught inside that temple. So let's go through the Sermon on the Mount, starting in 35 chapter 12, uh, just quickly, and let's see if we can spot any parallels. For those of you who have received an endowment in one of the Latter-day Saint temples, um, you can see if you can spot any parallels between what is the content of the sermon at the temple and what you see in modern temples. And for those of you who have not, It's instructive to recognize that everything that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is basically an important building block of how a modern Christian society should be founded. So here we begin. 
First of all, Jesus teaches about obedience and sacrifice. In 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 19 and 20, uh, he says, except you keep my commandments, you can in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven, right? You have to be obedient. And he also says, I require of you now a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's the sacrifice that is required. So he teaches here this, this important rule of obedience and sacrifice. Uh, then he teaches a prohibition against anger, against ill-speaking of the priesthood leaders when he says, Whoso, whoso I know you've heard of old time that you shouldn't kill, but now I'd say unto you, you shouldn't be angry with your brother. And whoso says to the brethren or to your brother, Raka, which uh, is a Hebrew uh, word that means empty-headed. If you, if you say to somebody that you're worthless, uh, you basically have no value. If you say to that, then you're in danger of judgment. This is a proscription against evil speaking. He talks about chastity uh, in 3 Nephi chapter 12. I'm sorry, that was in... Uh, chapter 12, verses 21 and 22. In verses 27 to 30, talks about chastity. You've heard that it's said of old time that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say, whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. He teaches that marriage is sacred. In verses 31 and 32, whoso shall marry her that is divorced shall commit adultery, right? This is Jesus teaching that you just don't set aside marriages out of convenience. Marriage is meant to last forever, and therefore uh, it's not a casual thing to set aside. It has to be a pretty severe transgression for a marriage dissolution to take place. In uh, 3 Nephi chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, Jesus talks about how of olden time it's said that you should perform your oaths. When you swear unto God, then you should keep that thing. But now I say unto you, let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. In other words, when you say the word yes, that's enough. That will suffice. Um, that is basically when you want to make a covenant with God, you don't have to invoke anything in particular. God is going to accept your word, and he's going to hold you to it, even if all you say is yes. Uh, Jesus teaches that we should love our enemies and give up that which is asked of us. So if you, uh, in verses 38 through 45, if you are sued at the law and, and, and your enemy taketh away your, your cloak, give him your coat also, and, or maybe it's the reverse. And if you uh, are smitten on one cheek, turn the other cheek also. If somebody compels you to walk one mile, walk two with them. Uh, you're living a higher order life, and that's sort of summarized in verse 48 when he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as I, or as your Father in heaven, is perfect. This teleos, this perfection, meant something different to the Jews than it means to us today. When Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, and the, the Nephites would have carried this meaning with them, right? He would have used the word that carried this meaning, I believe Jesus would have, because this is the way he taught it in Jerusalem. It's wholeness and wholeness specifically of your dedication or your consecration to God. So when he says, be ye therefore perfect, make sure you don't hold anything back. You are now covenanting with me that you are going to consecrate everything you are to try to be like God. This didn't mean that uh, none of your efforts mattered until you reached perfection. It, what it meant was when you find yourself holding back, 
then pay attention to that. That's something for you to learn from. What are you holding back from God? Look at it, examine it, ask for help with it, work on it. And as soon as you conquer that thing, then find out what the next thing is. You're never going to be done. The, the fact that we're never done doesn't mean we can't be perfect in examining these things. So that's, inter- that's an interesting uh, point there. When he talks about this teleos, or be, the, be therefore perfect, he wants us to be whole in our consecration to God. And what does consecration mean? It means in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13. Now we're going on to 3 Nephi chapter 13. It means giving to the poor, as we see in verses 1 through 4. It means uh, understanding the order of prayer that he introduces in verses 5 through 13. It means understanding fasting, washing, and anointing that he introduces in verse 17. And living consecration in our daily lives that, we, uh, that, he, that he introduces in, in verses 19 through 24. So what, what does that mean exactly? It means things like laying not up for ourselves treasures upon earth, that we value the heavenly more than we value the earthly. That's what, that, that is, those things are the meaning of consecration. Then he takes the disciples aside and uh, in verse 25, so we're still in 3 Nephi chapter 13. In verse 25, it says, Now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the twelve whom he had chosen and said unto them, Remember the words which I have spoken. For behold, ye are they to whom I have chosen to minister unto this people. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? In verse 26, he talks about how uh, the fowls of the air are clothed. So Jesus talks about clothing his disciples. Now, clothing, uh, as a verb, is closely related to the Greek word endu, uh, or the Greek root endu, which has been brought as a cognate into modern English as endow. If you go into BibleHub.com and you pull up either Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, or Luke chapter 24, verse 49, you'll see that Jesus is talking about clothing the disciples, but it's the same. Uh, in, the, in the case of Luke, it's, it's actually using the word endued, but in the case of Matthew, uh, he's talking about clothing them or endowing them with power. So he's, uh, here Jesus is specifically mentioning an endowment of power. And then in uh, 3 Nephi, we're back now to 3 Nephi chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 are about preparing for judgment, preparing to meet the Lord. When Jesus talks about, judge not lest ye be judged, right? You all know these verses, but I'm putting them in a new context for you. So the, uh, everything that I've talked about up to this point is a stage along your eternal progression, Obedience and sacrifice. Don't speak evil of the Lord's anointed. Obey the law of chastity. Respect the sanctity of marriage. Um, Your word, when you agree to something, your word is enough. Just saying yes is enough. The the love of your enemies or, or consecrating your heart, giving your heart to God and living a higher order life. Consecration of, of your worldly goods. Um, learning the order of prayer. These are important steps. These are stepping stones in your eternal progression to return to Jesus Christ and and live the kind of life that God lives. And finally, he's saying, I want to prepare you to be in front of God and to understand what the judgment is going to be like. And then in 
uh, verse 6 of 3 Nephi chapter 14. He talks about why it's important to keep the things that he's teaching them sacred. He says, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, or don't cast your pearls before swine. Swine were dirty animals. They were, they were uh, forbidden animals to be eaten in, under the law of Moses. And so they were doubly dirty. Not only are they physically dirty, but they're spiritually dirty. Uh, and so therefore, you wouldn't cast something as precious as a pearl before swine, because not only will they trample it under their feet, which is not a fate you want for something as precious as a pearl, but then they'll turn again and rend you. So th these are the consequences for breaking this sort of sacredness that, that you should treat these spiritual subjects with. And finally, so now we're, now we're, in, we're still in 3 Nephi chapter 14. We're towards the end of the Sermon at the Temple and, the, and its correspondence with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we, finally, the disciples have to come one at a time to Jesus or unto God with a threefold petition. They knock, they ask, and they seek. So they do this three times, and then they, uh, then they will receive gifts from God. He says, whoso shall ask will receive, and uh, God is better than an earthly father. So what earthly father is not going to give you know, f a fish or a piece of bread rather than a stone or a serpent to their children? And he's using these uh, food examples to talk about health, meaning life, the life that food gives us, and spiritual health or eternal health. So God will give us these spiritual gifts, the gifts both of nourishment and of eternal life if we ask. Now, an interesting thing to note about this admonition to ask and you shall receive is that plenty of us have asked and never received for things from God, right? We've all of us asked for something from God and not received it. But when we take it in context of the entire sermon, what we realize is this asking comes at the end of a long process where we have gone through a number of commandments and covenants, and we have agreed to follow the covenants of God up to a certain point. And then after the prayer and after the judgment comes this point at which we ask God, after we approach him in a threefold sort of way, then we ask him for a gift. That gift at that point is going to be something like, please give me eternal life, God. Right? That is what we would ask God after, after going through this long process. Jesus has basically been teaching the disciples what the straight and narrow way looks like. In fact, he goes on to talk about the straight and narrow way in verses 13 and onward. He says, God, basically God meets us at this gate. This, this, uh, the path to life is an undeviating course that leads back to our eternal Father. And entering into the presence of the Lord, as he talks about in 3 Nephi, uh, chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. He talks about how one day we will enter into that presence. We're going to either be judged worthy or unworthy to be in his presence on that day based on how we have treated his doctrines and whether we've been, we've been obedient. So that is uh, Third Nephi chapters 12 through 14, these, these chapters that mirror the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus not only teaching, for, so chapter 11 is teaching them, here's how you're going to do your your public and weekly worship. But then chapter 12 through 14 is Jesus teaching them, here's what the temple is going to be for you. This temple now is a learning place for you to learn these higher lessons on how to be a follower of Christ. And so I'm teaching you now outside the temple, but you will return to this temple for these lessons. And every time you come, you'll understand them just a little bit better. And 
you'll also uh, be charged to make covenants inside this place, and you'll be charged to guard the sacredness of what you learn. You won't, you won't cast these things that you learn in this holy place. You won't cast them before people who have not accepted them or don't recognize their holiness, or there will be consequences. You will be asked to describe in your life a, an undeviating course back to God, and if you do that, then God will uh, receive you into his presence. So that is what Jesus is going to institute. Then, then immediately he institutes leaders and he says, I, you know, I've called you. you. You people are the ones who are going to baptize when I'm gone. You're going to lead these people. Jesus is uh, endorsing the policy of having prophets. But specifically now, the, the prophets have a hierarchy of, of, of authority, the way that they uh, did not, you might say, in, in ancient Israel. The high priests, the descendants of Aaron, were the ones who ruled over the temple and saw to the ordinances there. But Jesus is instituting a higher order. And the 12 that, um, you know, they're the analogs of the 12 in the New Testament, Peter and James and John and the others, they never had control over the temple in Jerusalem. So they actually couldn't preside over the, this kind of worship for the Christians uh, in the ancient Near East. And that is one important difference between the, the Nephites and the Jews, is that the Nephites actually did have a functioning temple that was presided over by Jesus's disciples. So that's, that's one interesting distinction there. And so Jesus goes on to teach a few different things in uh, chapter 15 that only apply in this particular case. So that, again, he gives this, uh, this explanation. Here's why I taught this lesson to you just now. This thing that is known among, in the Bible, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It will be known among you, the Sermon at the Temple. The reason that I taught this thing is because these are the things I taught my disciples before I ascended to my Father. Uh, these are the, this is the way that you are going to worship in the Temple. The, these are the lessons that you will teach each other, whether you do it ritualistically or whether uh, you will teach these things explicitly the way I'm talking to you now in this podcast. That part is not clear uh, from the scriptures, but probably they, they repeated as close as they could to the words of Jesus. I would, that would be my guess. And this is now the purpose of chapter 15 is Jesus saying, look, don't marvel that I'm telling you that the law of Moses should be done away because I have just explained to you what will replace it. This replacement that I've given you, this is your new form of worship. The, the law of Moses has not passed away. It's been completely fulfilled. And it was always meant to be sort of a kindergarten so that you could graduate into real school and learn uh, what I really wanted you to know, which is this higher law, that you're all ready now to live. I'm, I'm giving you the higher law because I believe that you're capable of fulfilling that too. Uh, in the second part of 3 Nephi chapter 15 is Jesus talking about the fact that the Nephites are the other sheep. He talked to the people in Jerusalem about other sheep. You are those other sheep, he says to the Nephites. And then he says, I have still other sheep and I'm going to go into them when I leave you. And unless the people, unless my disciples in Jerusalem ask the Father in my name to know what I meant, then they'll remain ignorant of you until your records come forth unto them. And that's what we have here in the Book of Mormon is uh, Jesus's testimony that when he said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, uh, that he was talking about specifically 
the Nephites, but in more general terms, he was talking about every people that were faithful enough to have a prophet or to have any believers that he could appear to. In that, and that continues in chapter 16. I will visit those other people, right? I'll visit the other sheep of the, of the house of Israel. And he quotes at the end of chapter 16, he quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, Then shall the words of the prophet Isaiah be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchmen shall lift up thy voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye, or in other words, uh, they will see each other clearly when the Lord shall bring again Zion. They'll see with their own eyes when the Lord shall bring again Zion. They'll see it in person. Break, break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. So this is Isaiah's prophecy that the, the one day all of these scattered branches of the house of Israel will be gathered in and joined together as one. This is reflected in our articles of faith, among many other places, that we believe that there will be a literal gathering of Israel. And not only that, but that there will be scriptures, not just the, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is one fulfillment of this prophecy, but there will be other scriptures that we will read from people who have been scattered remnants of the house of Israel that will be brought together and we will learn of the other sheep, the other folds that went that Jesus went to visit and to teach. We will learn what he taught them, we will learn what they've been through and what their prophets over the centuries have taught them. Uh, to finish today's lesson, I want to go back to something that, that I missed, that I forgot to talk about uh, last time. My wife and I were reading in 3 Nephi chapter 8 and the verse is uh, verse 13. The highways were broken up, and the level roads were spoiled, and many smooth places became rough. And my wife said, that sounds like Isaiah speaking there. And it, I realized uh, that I had forgotten to talk about this, but this is the reverse of Isaiah chapter 40. So you'll remember in Isaiah 40, what Isaiah is admonishing the Israelites to do is prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, and, and back when we talked about this, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when, when we talked about uh, John the Baptist saying that he was the person uh, who was called upon to go before Jesus and say this, then we, talked, we taught this as well as uh, in our Old Testament year, we talked about this verse. But the point of it is, in, in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, the, the Persian emperor, for example, he might visit one of the far-flung reaches of his empire. And if the people in those villages got word that the emperor was going to visit, then they would spend years even uh, building a road. They would make the, the pathway level because this king, this emperor, was going to be coming with a huge retinue and an entourage, and he was he needed to be able to arrive quickly and leave quickly. And if he wasn't able to get in quickly, he may either choose not to come, or he might be displeased with those inhabitants that had not made his paths straight. So you might have a winding road going through your mountains, but it's worth it now to embark on a huge public works project so that this emperor can arrive in your city and bestow upon it whatever gifts he has. Right? So this, was the, this is what Isaiah was saying. Make straight the way of the Lord. And you may recall in, 
one of my favorite pieces of music is Handel's Messiah. The earliest, one of the earliest parts to it is, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. The, uh, the rough places plain, right? The, the crooked straight. What this verse here in 3 Nephi chapter 8 is describing, this, this verse that talks about the destruction that attended the death of Jesus Christ is the reverse of that. So I'm going to read it again. The highways were broken up, the level roads were spoiled, and many smooth places became rough. Now, I would guess that uh, whatever word that Mormon used to, to say um, smooth, it was probably the same word that Isaiah used when he said uh, the rough place is plain, right? So the smooth and plain were probably the same original word. In other words, what, what I think Mormon was doing here was actually quoting Isaiah. He was saying this, this admonition that Isaiah had for people to perform uh, certain preparations so that God could come, all these preparations are being reversed. And I guess I wanted to go back and talk about this because now we see that uh, once, once Jesus Christ is among the Nephites, he's teaching them how to make straight the way of the Lord. They had, what they had done with their combined wisdom and all of their selfishness and by giving, by giving heed and giving control to their carnal desires, what they had accomplished was to break up the, the, the way of the Lord, to, to make his path crooked, to cause the, the highways to be broken up, the level roads to be spoiled, and the smooth places to become rough. When Jesus appears, then he does the actual work of causing the, the rough places to be made smooth. Now, obviously, Isaiah was speaking figuratively. He didn't mean that we have to build an actual road for God to arrive. What he meant was, we build spiritual paths for God to arrive in our hearts. And Jesus, on the other hand, uh, when, he's, when he speaks to the Nephites in this cloud, this voice uh, uh, is beamed directly into the heads of all of the Nephites across the land. When he speaks to them in this way, he's speaking literally. You have broken up. You, not me. You have broken up everything. I had to, I had to unleash the consequences of your actions upon the world itself because the, the blood of the prophets is crying up unto me day and night. And I, I cannot have it doing that. I cannot have it anymore. I have to stop the blood of the prophets. I have to hide your iniquities from before my face. So you've broken up the ways of the Lord. And now I will show you when I appear to you. I will teach you how it is that you will make my paths straight. How it is that you can arrive to that gate where you get to make an accounting for your choices in this life and enter into the kingdom, into the presence of the Father. And so that's what Jesus does in the Sermon at the Temple. He's teaching us the, the road that we will walk on, the undeviating course that leads back to the Father. And if we will follow it in humility, asking for his help, then God will accept us into his presence. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.